Good afternoon. You're watching The Briefing Room. I'm ABC's Mary Alice Parks, joined by my colleague Ben Siegel, who covers Capitol Hill for us. And a day after President's Day, constitutional questions about President Trump's declaration of a national emergency to build a wall on the southern border. A new lawsuit out today, 16 states suing this administration, saying that that declaration is an abuse of power. We have a quote from that lawsuit here. The president has used the pretext of a manufactured crisis of unlawful immigration to declare a national emergency and redirect federal dollars. There's a concern among these states that they are going to that the president and the administration is going to take money away from other programs to build this wall, Ben. And he's getting a lot of blowback for it. That's right. There was a sugar high initially, the end of this shutdown, the signing of the spending bill, and the declaration of this national emergency. But now Democrats, uh, empowered across the country, these different state attorneys general, are now challenging this. Democrats in Congress could join this lawsuit, and this could drag on for a long time. And we're joined now by one of those attorney generals who is sitting uh, there in Minnesota, I think, Keith Ellison, one of the 16 states that signed on to this lawsuit. Um, I am struck by the fact that it is Minnesota, of all places, a thousand miles away from the southwest border, that is signing on. Is this really the fight for the state of Minnesota to be having? Well, uh, the answer is yes, and, the, and, and, it, and there's two solid justifications that I have. One is that the separation of powers embedded in our U.S. Constitution uh, is everybody's business. There's nobody who's sort of out of the loop on that one. Congress has the responsibility enshrined in the Constitution to uh, of, of the purse. And when the president can invoke emergency powers and then assume that power, uh, then that is a dangerous thing if there is no legitimate emergency. In an emergency, we allow it because circumstances dictate it. And that's why every other president has been careful to make sure that there was a real emergency before uh, such powers would be invoked because they are awesome and wide-ranging, uh, but not this one. The second thing is, is that, you know, when the president reallocates uh, military uh, drug interdiction and National Guard funds, this definitely has the effect of impacting the whole country, no matter how far it may be <clears throat> from the border. So this impacts us constitutionally and actually. We had that quote from you today that the Minnesota National Guard has over 13,000 soldiers and airmen, employs more than 2,000 on a full-time basis, that 96 percent of the funding for the Minnesota National Guard comes from the federal government, and that a loss of that funding could negatively impact your state. But are you under the impression that that funding is what's on the chopping block here? Yeah, the president is the one who identified the funding he's going to reallocate, and he identified those sources as funds he will shift from uh, the appropriated purpose to his border wall. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thanks uh, for joining us. Some Democrats have pointed to uh, what the president has done here. Uh, as a possible precedent for a future Democrat in the Oval Office to declare a national emergency on issues like uh, uh, the opioid crisis, on climate change, on uh, things that Democrats believe are of greater pressing national concern. Given the fact that uh, your office is challenging this, uh, do you believe that uh, this is something that Democrats uh, should not do if, if they uh, take this back in the, in the White House and, and consider doing these sorts of actions? Nobody should ever do what the president just did. So, look. I do believe that the opioid crisis is a legitimate emergency 
in a certain sense. But what you but but the real what, what you do in this situation is you go to Congress and you say this is a serious problem. We all have to fix it. Let's get together and put the policy and the funding together to address it. That actually has been done relative to the wall. And the 5.6 billion that he wanted was rejected in a democratic process by the US Congress in a bill that he eventually signed only a few days ago. So what he's doing now is an in run around that process. Look, if there is a legitimate emergency and the president, whoever that president may be, feels that he or she has to invoke emergency powers to solve the problem, you know, I, I may or may not agree, but I will find it within their discretion as long as there's some factual basis for it. But he has said himself that there is, that I don't need the money, I just want to do it faster. That is a statement that this is not an emergency. He's also just gone through the legislative process. He didn't like it, and so he's going around it. The bottom line is that is a abuse of the Constitution, and nobody should stand for it. The president seems to have conceded in the last few days that he could very well lose this case in circuit court, but that he likes his odds in the Supreme Court. Is that where this lawsuit is definitely headed? How do you like your odds? Well, it, it certainly could well be headed there. I, I hope that any judge who looks at this issue will say that the powers that are available to a president at the uh, declaration of an emergency are so wide-ranging and so um, violative of our Constitution and the rights people have that they can only be invoked in a legitimate emergency. Uh, you know, you know. look, uh, Abraham Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus during the Civil War. That's an emergency. I think a war is an emergency. But in a situation like this, where the president has essentially conceded that he just didn't get what he wanted, I hope that any judge who construes this, whether it's a district court judge or a Supreme Court, will take it seriously and understand that they're not making a judicial decision for the moment. They're not making it for a president who they like or don't like. They're making it for the ages for our nation. And so I hope that we just don't get uh, some partisan judicial decision making uh, at any level of, the, of, of our court system, including the Supreme Court. I'm really glad to have you on today of all days, where we have Senator Bernie Sanders jumping back into the presidential race again. You were one of his original big supporters back in 2016. So I wanted to ask you at the end of this interview, are you going to be out there campaigning for him again in this election cycle? Let me tell you, I want to talk to Bernie and other candidates about things. I can tell you that my admiration and respect for Bernie, Senator Sanders, has, has never been higher. But, you know, uh, we went through a deliberative process the first time, and we're going to go through it again this time. And But let me tell you, uh, I think many, many of the policies that he's fighting for are responsive to the needs of the American people. Better wages, more affordable education, health care that everybody can afford, doing real action on climate. I mean, you know, um, he's the Bernie who has been my friend for many years, and uh, I still admire him tremendously. Well, Attorney General Ellison, thank you so much for joining us. It's a busy day for you, and we appreciate your insight on this lawsuit. Thank you. Thank you.
want to turn now to our colleague Jordan Phelps, who's at the White House there. Jordan, the president today was up and tweeting early about that lawsuit. Do you think this White House is nervous that they could really lose in court? Yeah, I mean, the president has said it himself, Mary Alice. He predicts, in fact, that he will face a couple of losses along the way, but that ultimately he feels he will prevail at the Supreme Court. The president just weighed in on this again, uh, really unfazed by that new lawsuit, saying that he had the authority to declare this national emergency because it was based on national security. So the president really feeling confident uh, in this fight going forward, Mary Alice. And it's been surprising to watch Republicans teeter on this issue because we've had so many instances in the past where Republicans have said on matters of national security, the White House gets the final say. It has been surprising, I think, for some to watch the blowback on Capitol Hill, even among members of his own party. Yeah, Mary Alice, no doubt there are members of the president's own party that did not want to see this emergency declaration go forward. And it was actually a little surprising to see McConnell um, the day that he said that the government would not shut down, expressing that he would back the president in this emergency declaration. It seems maybe uh, some sort of agreement reached between those two men. Uh, the president would have his back in keeping the government open, and McConnell would have his on this emergency declaration. But, Mary Alice, it will be interesting to see if some members of his own party break ranks uh, when there is a resolution of disapproval in front of Congress uh, to, to formally say that they are opposed to what the president is doing. But, of course, Mary Alice, the president has ultimate veto power over that, uh, and Congress would then have to have a supermajority, a very high bar, to get over that to block the president from moving forward. You're exactly right. And we heard from House Republicans over the weekend that they are pretty convinced they could keep uh, Keep a veto, how do you even say this? Keep him from not being able to override a veto. It would take such a huge number of votes that they could at least stop the uh, overriding of a veto. Jordan, thank you for bringing us up to speed and looking at what's next. But stay with us because I want to get your thoughts on a few more headlines to come. But quickly, Ben, I want you to help me break down this story that's in the news again today. More questions swirling about the relationship between people close to this president and Saudi Arabia. And House Democrats saying they plan to investigate whether or not there were folks that were trying to profit by consulting and using their connections through this White House. That's right. Today we got some new details of efforts inside the White House in the early days of the Trump administration to advance this plan to essentially build nuclear reactors in Saudi Arabia. Now, that's a position that some... Uh, people in the foreign policy community, some people close to the White House support because they see that as a way to check Iran's uh, uh, nuclear ambitions in the Middle East. But it was something that was pushed by General Michael Flynn, the president's first national security advisor, uh, even though there were concerns that he may have been able to profit from that, uh, given some of the consulting work he was doing during the campaign. So the new report today from Elijah Cummings, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, uh, provides a pretty uh, clear snapshot of efforts to push this policy in the White House in the early days of the investigation. Um, and he's concerned in that he's going to continue looking into this uh, now that he has subpoena power. And there were a few whistleblowers from inside the government that That's came right. forward and said that they had real issues with the ethics here? That's right. There were people who came forward, whistleblowers who came to the committee and essentially said that uh, they were uh, warning uh, 
Flynn, people around Flynn, advocates of this program, uh, that this was an unethical thing to do, that it violated uh, the uh, laws that govern uh, nuclear agreements, the transfer of nuclear technology between the United States and other countries. Uh, and these, these advocates were pushing this p policy after Flynn left the White House. And uh, despite the warnings and advice of, of uh, White House ethics officials, of H.R. McMaster, who replaced Flynn as the national security advisor, they were throwing up red flags. People were still trying to advance this policy. And we know even last week in the White House, President Trump met with a number of uh, nuclear CEOs from companies that uh, develop nuclear technology in the United States about selling their, their, uh, their wares and their technology abroad. So this is very much an idea that's still percolating around the White House, yeah. around the administration, and that's what Democrats want to look into. This is interesting to me. I expect that we will hear a lot more about the oversight that Democrats are going to push so. forward in Congress. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to close out with a big headline from today that, man, I feel like I know a whole lot about. I covered Senator Bernie Sanders on the 2016 you know campaign trail. I do. I spent a lot of time with Senator Bernie Sanders the first time he ran for office, and now he's back running for office again, running for the presidency again, this time joining five other senators, now six total who have thrown their hat in the ring. But even though today is about uh, him being back on the campaign trail, I think it's important to remember that for a lot of Senator Sanders supporters, he never really went anywhere. In the last two years, he's continued to basically campaign. He's holding these town halls, putting out big videos, pushing big business on the questions of minimum wage. There's a lot of um, energy, that grassroots energy that he was famous for in 2016 that is still with him uh, today, going into this whole new presidential bid. And it'll be interesting to see how that energy uh exposes itself now that we're uh, he's entering a field of not just two uh, candidates in the Democratic primary, but it's now a whole field of many, many more possibly. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that uh, plays out. And that's exactly what I want to talk to Neil Sorka about, who's a communications director with Democracy for America. I think we have Neil joining us from Detroit. There he is. Thanks for joining us. You know, your organization... Your organization endorsed Senator Sanders early and decisively last go-around, but this time your endorsement still up for grabs? Yeah, uh, DFA's endorsement is still up for grabs at the moment, um, and it will be uh, throughout much of 2019. Uh, going back during the 2016 election, uh, we were very active early on in the process trying to encourage Elizabeth Warren to run uh, through the Run, Warren, Run campaign. And then we, uh, after doing a lot of discussions with our members and do, subjecting it to a member vote, we endorsed Senator Sanders in December of 2015, before that 2016 contest. So there's a lot of election uh, left to go uh, back then, and uh, there's a lot of election uh, left to go, of course, here. Uh, and, and really, uh, with this many uh, inclusive populist you know, candidates running uh, this time around, uh, the campaigns they run are going to be even more important than ever. And we're really excited to watch that happen. I want to pull up the statement that your organization put out today. It says, blessed with a diverse field of candidates committed to inclusive populist reforms, we're looking forward to seeing how Sanders and the movement behind him makes the case for political revolution in a very different 2020 contest. So what exactly will you and other progressives be looking for? You know, so I think what we're looking for is a few different things. Number one, uh, we need a, a presidential candidates in 2020 to be running. It, it's not just about being against Donald Trump. It's also about putting forward a bold, inclusive, populist agenda. Things like, you know, Medicare for all, free college, uh, aggressive uh, action on uh, voting rights uh, that are needed. Uh, but it's also about how you run. 
so it's what you run and how you run. Are you uh, working to turn out that new American majority of black, brown, and progressive white voters? Or are you just trying to uh, flip the kind of like mythical swing Trump voters? Our belief in, in the data in 2018 shows that Democrats' path to victory is by turning out the millions of people who didn't show up in 2016, rather than you know trying to swing uh, you know these these few uh, and increasingly increasingly fewer uh, swing voters. Do you think that Senator Bernie Sanders has done enough to address some of those accusations of sexual harassment and assault within the ranks of his campaign? Is that going to continue to be an issue for him? You know, listen. I think uh, there is there is no such thing as a perfect candidate. Um, and, and every single candidate running is going to have issues that they face in this campaign. I think that the concerns that were raised by the people on uh, Bernie Sanders' campaigns are real. I think Senator Sanders was smart to take those uh, concerns seriously. And the, the proof will be how has his campaign changed going forward. Again, it's not going to be a question of whether or not there are going to be problems in these campaigns or issues that these candidates face. It's how they deal with them and how they change as a result of those problems. So that's what I think people are going to be looking for. We've seen President Trump already sort of alluding to Senator Sanders in his recent speeches, talking about the evils of socialism. Do you think that Bernie Sanders' previous identity as a democratic socialist could really hurt his electability? You know, I, I think I understand why Donald Trump wants to run a campaign straight out of like the 1950s Red Scare, uh, because he doesn't have much of an agenda to run on at this point. You know, what the American people are concerned about are how they're going to pay for their kids' education or whether or not they're living in a, a healthcare system that puts profits over people's lives. Uh, so if Donald Trump and the Republicans want to have a fight over whether you call it socialism, democratic socialism, and, and what, what Venezuela is going through right now, that's their prerogative. I think what Democrats are going to do, I think what Bernie Sanders and I think what a lot of inclusive populist candidates are going to do over the course of this campaign is focus on the issues uh, that matter uh, to real people and propose solutions and, and a visionary solutions to address them. Neil with Democracy for America, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be talking with you a lot as the Democrats continue to go head-to-head -head in this primary process. Thank you, Neil. Thanks. Before we wrap, I want to go back to Jordan there at the White House. We were just talking about the interesting relationship between President Trump and Bernie Sanders. On the one hand, here he is talking about the evils of socialism. On the other hand, today he was paying compliments to the senator. Yeah, Mary Alice, you probably know this better than anybody. It really is weird. The president in the Oval Office there saying that he wishes Bernie Sanders well. He has sort of this affection for him. I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that they both had a common adversary, at least for a time in Hillary Clinton. Uh, the president again saying that he feels bad and thinks that Bernie Sanders was treated unfairly. Still, the president says he thinks Bernie has sort of missed his moment. And he then spoke straight to camera saying, in the end, we know only one candidate will win. And I think you all know who that is, obviously speaking about himself. Well, thank you, Jordan, for bringing us insights. And it's true, Ben, there were some issues in the 2016 campaign where President Trump and Bernie Sanders sounded similar. And one that comes to mind now is the cost of prescription drugs. That's something that maybe in a Washington, in a different political climate, you might see President Trump extend an olive branch to Democrats on the Hill, like Senator Sanders, actually work together on something like that. It's hard to imagine that happening now uh, with Sanders in the presidential race and, uh, and Trump's position with Congress. But that was certainly a place where their, where their policy overlapped. 
Well, thank you so much for watching The Briefing Room again today from me and Ben Siegel. We'll be back here tomorrow and every day at 3.30. You continue with all of our coverage on the website and online. Thanks again.